that's so easy to feel like the work we've been given to do is God's primary interest in our lives. But the truth, as Catherine Doherty saw and as Thomas Merton embraced, that the opposite is true. It's out of our intimate relationship with God that our work and our ministry flows. Welcome to Life with God, a Renovari podcast, a place for unhurried and thoughtful conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and today we start off a new series with our friend Mimi Dixon and a conversation about Catherine Doherty. I love learning from old books, the devotional classics, those faithful followers of Jesus who've gone before us. They carry on a great conversation about growing in Christ-likeness, a conversation we get to join in, a sort of standing on the backs of giants. Their lives and words come to us endorsed by the generations who found their work helpful along the journey. Of course, they had blind spots and will disagree with them at various levels. But for the most part, their trusted voices, marching through time, echoing the words of Jesus and giving shape and example of what it looks like to live in the here and now of God's kingdom. For this new series, I get to talk with a number of people about folks from the past who've had a significant impact on their lives. And some of the historic figures you'll know, others you might not. Some are more ancient and some are more modern. But they all help us to join in this great historic conversation about the growth of the soul. The historic figure we're looking at today is Catherine Doherty. Catherine was born in Russia in 1896. During World War I, Catherine served as a nurse in the front line, experiencing firsthand the horrors of that war. Escaping the Russian Revolution to Finland and facing near death there, her family immigrated to Canada, where she opened the Friendship House to serve the poor in Toronto. In 1938, she opened another Friendship House in Harlem, New York. Catherine was a writer, lecturer, and thought of as a pioneer in the struggle for interracial justice. She's best known for her book, Pastinia. Catherine was a spiritual mother to many priests and laity, a contemporary of Dorothy Day, and a significant influence on Thomas Merton. The letters between the two are definitely worth reading. Catherine was known as a fiery, no-nonsense woman who spoke truth with power and authority. In talking with Mimi about Catherine, her direct influence on Mimi's life and ministry became immediately clear. It was a real joy to see Mimi light up as she shared about her friend, Catherine. I spoke with Mimi from her home in Colorado. Mimi, I think it was you who first um, introduced me to this idea that an old author who's passed away, can be our friend. My memory is that you um, 
uh, talked about Teresa or maybe Julian as your friend, but it was almost like um, like your real friend, like it, it almost like you know they're not alive, right? Well, we can't see them, but they're definitely alive. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I just it it really helped open up a number of things for me of that these are people that we can learn from and um, mm. can be quite helpful. And you have a great track record because we've now done podcasts on Teresa. Julian, Lilius, yay, and and today I get a new friend who I know very little about. So, could you tell us about your friend Catherine? Oh, thank you, Nathan, for the opportunity. I think it would maybe help to know what is my attraction to these old friends, and it Please. really comes from a story that your dad in his book on prayer. It was the first little excerpt from the Desert Fathers in the first chapter. And I read that and I had to put the book down for a while because I just thought, oh, that's what I want. <laughs> and he told the story about um, a Desert Father named Abba Lot, who wanted very, very much to be more like Jesus. And he knew now that this was really a possibility. So he goes to his wise older friend, Abba Joseph, for counsel. And he says, I eat a little. I sleep a little, I pray without ceasing, I work hard with my hands, and I share whatever I have with those in need. What else should I be doing? So Abba Joseph rose to his feet, he raised his arms, and tongues of fire flashed from his fingers. If you choose, he replied, if you choose, you can become a living flame. <laughs> Of all my old friends, probably the one who represents this most clearly is Catherine de Hook Doherty. Well, Catherine de Hook Doherty never wanted anything else, and she never settled for anything else. Enlightened and transformed by her intimate relationship with Jesus, people were drawn to her like a light shining in the darkness. This was the experience of Thomas Merton the first time he saw her. In his autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain, Merton tells the story, and it's really very engaging, so I'm going to just read it the way he wrote it. Oh, good. We get the story. Yes, you do. Oh, good. This Thank is you. not Thank one you, you want to miss. <laughs> at the time, Merton was part of the faculty at St. Bonaventure in New York, and he was in the process of discerning, what is God's call upon my life? This is how he tells the story. I was walking around the football field as usual in the dark. The alumni hall was full of lights. There was some speaker there talking to the clerics and sisters about some important topic. I had not paid much attention to the list of speakers on the schedule, but I knew that one of them was the Baroness de Hook, who was working among African Americans in Harlem. But I did not think that she was the speaker for that particular evening. I hesitated for a moment, wondering whether I wanted to go on or not. At first I thought, nah, and started back toward my apartment. But then I thought, oh, I'll at least take a look inside the door. Going up the steps to the second floor of the hall where the theater was, I could hear someone speaking with great vehemence. It was not a man's voice. When I stepped into the room, there was a woman standing on the stage. 
Now, a woman like her, standing alone on a stage in front of a big lighted hall in the glare of the stage lights, is at a disadvantage. It's not likely that she will make much of an impression. And this particular woman was dressed in clothes that were nondescript and plain, even poor. She had no artful way of walking around either. She had no fancy speaker's tricks, nothing to entertain the audience. And yet, as soon as I came in the door, the impression she was making on that room full of nuns and clerics and priests and various lay people pervaded the place with such power that it nearly knocked me backwards down the stairs which I had just ascended. She had a strong voice and strong convictions and strong things to say, and she was saying them in the simplest, most unvarnished, bluntest possible kind of talk, and with such uncompromising directness that it stunned. You could feel right away that most of her audience was hanging on her words, and that some of them were frightened and that one or two were angry, but that everyone was intent on the things she had to say. I realized it was the Baroness. <laughs> so Merton goes on in his autobiography to summarize her message, which echoes the words of John in 1 John three sixteen to 18. John writes, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Hmm. It was the early 1940s, and people at that time were deathly afraid of communist ideology, which was taking hold in the ghettos of New York. So the Baroness, Merton writes, bluntly declared that if Christians had really lived up to our obligations and really did the things that Jesus came on earth to teach us to do, that is, if we really loved one another and saw Christ in one another and lived as saints and did something to win justice for the poor, then ideologies like communism would make very little progress. But, she said, instead of seeing Christ suffering in the poor, and instead of rushing to help, we prefer our own comfort. We look away because it makes us uneasy. We never stop to think that we, perhaps, might be partly responsible for it. And so, she said, people continue to die of starvation and disease, while those who do condescend to consider their problems hold banquets in the big hotels downtown to discuss the race situation in a big rosy cloud of hot air. The communists are strong in Harlem, she declared, because they are doing the things that Christians should be expected to do. The communists are showing up to help. Merton writes, I had never seen anyone so calm, so certain, so peaceful in her confidence in God. The Baroness filled up the room with her faith and conviction, and what she said could not help but move her audience deeply as she challenged us to follow in the sacrificial way of Jesus. I spoke to her after her talk, he says, 
and asked if I might come down to Harlem to work with her among the poor. Sure, she said. Come on. <laughs> the thing that strikes me, Nate, so much about Catherine Doherty was the way that she embodied in a very powerful way the suffering of Jesus as he looks upon our world. Teresa of Calcutta once said to her sisters, if what we see breaks our hearts, imagine what it's doing to Jesus. So be the one to show up. Be the one to be present to him as he is present to others. And in many ways, it seems to me that, that Catherine, Catherine embodies for me the yes of Mary, the mother of Jesus. In so doing, she became a contemporary example of what it looks like and what it takes to burn with God's love. So Thomas Merton and Catherine Doherty became friends. He didn't mm -hmm. work with her for long in Harlem because it became clear to him that his call was different than to spend his life living there in the ghetto with her. But the two of them became friends, she being 20 years his senior, and Merton considered her to be his spiritual mentor. Over the years, the two of them wrote letters, and I'm so glad that they did. Nowadays, it'd be hard to find a collection like this using email and texting the way we do. But back then, they wrote letters, and they kept those letters, and they had been published. In one of these letters to Merton, Catherine shared her secret. She said this, you must never lose track of keeping first things first, to love God and know him. Out of this focus on him follows much prayer, thought, meditation, and then action. Keeping the first thing first will put all of your works in the right proportion. So see, this made me curious. I thought, Okay, so a person living among the poorest of the poor by choice in Harlem, how, what did she do? How did she keep first things first? Well, she writes in her letters to Merton, seeing that Jesus regularly withdrew to lonely places to be alone with God in quiet and in prayer, she resolved to do the same because it became her conviction that out of those times of intimacy with the Father, with Abba, Jesus received his vision, he received a clarity about what he was to do each day, and the Holy Spirit empowered him to do that mission without being depleted or crushed. Hmm. So she decided that she would create a desert in the city. Now, in her homeland of Russia, where she was born and raised, they have what they call Paustinias, P-O-U-S-T-I-N-I-A. It was a place where people would withdraw. It could be a room in a house. It could be, it could be a, a, a cabin in the woods where people would go. It was stripped of everything but a bed, a chair, a table, some water to drink, the scriptures. They weren't there to study. They weren't there to write. They were there to listen. <laughs> they went to withdraw and to be alone with Jesus. So she created a Palestinia in the city. She set aside a room like that where she would go and she would be intentionally quiet and she said it would take a while for the noise to begin to leave. 
all our thoughts and, gee whiz, what should I be doing today? Oh, dear, I forgot to do that. She would just quiet herself and listen, still her soul to be present to Abba. So she credited the Palestinian for being the transformative space in her life where she caught fire Mm -hmm. and began burning for God. She wrote her signature book, which is called Palestinian. And my first exposure to her, where I first met Catherine, at least through her writing, was when I was on the Isle of Iona. And I just had breakfast in the retreat person who, who lived in the house and who took care of the guests that were there. Um, it's a very small house. She came up to me and she said, Mimi, take this with you today and read it. It will speak to you. So I took Palestinian with me to the, down to Columbus Bay on the south end of Iona, and I began to read. What I experienced in the silence and solitude of my own Palestinia was like a shaft of light that hit me straight in the face. Now, Catherine had warned, for a while you may be a little blinded, but she said, if you persist, soon you will learn to see fully in his light, and then your work will become like fire, the sparks of the Holy Spirit, lighting little torches everywhere, to illuminate our terrific modern darkness. Hmm. So that's how I met her. So for her, this practice of withdrawing to a a desert of sorts is what fueled her or like gave her, yeah. For you, is that a practice you then adopted? Yes. Of sorts? Yes. Yes. Primarily her... um, her repeated phrase in her letters to Thomas Merton, where she would repeatedly say to him, the challenge for you, the challenge for me is to keep first things first, because it's so easy for us to get pulled off into secondary concerns that are very important, and they're part of God's call on our life, the way that he wants us to embody his presence in the world. But she said the temptation is to make those things our focus. So Mm -hmm. she repeatedly said to him, endeavor and strive to keep first things first. Absorb yourself in the life of God in a regular rhythm of withdrawal for silence, Mm -hmm. solitude, and prayer. Let me read you a place where she talked about that in a letter to Merton. You have only one person to reform and that is you, (laughs) then enters the supernatural. When one does work on oneself first, with only one thought in mind to love God and transform our own soul, well, then God enters into the picture and somehow brings other souls to us. We become a leader. This is how a transformative community is formed through the power of the Holy Spirit. First, one individual, and then others who have been led to the first. Our concentration always is on the simple and primary teachings of Jesus. As the group applies these teachings in their own lives, they soon become agents of change in society. That is how it works. 
but is as meaningful and important as the work, she stressed. Never ever lose track of keeping the first thing first. <laughs> that has become central in my own thinking, Nathan, as you know, keeping the first thing first, because it's so easy to feel like the work we've been given to do is God's primary interest in our lives. Hmm. But the truth, as Catherine Doherty saw and as Thomas Merton embraced, that the opposite is true. It's out of our intimate relationship with God that our work and our ministry flows. And it becomes contagious. Now, at the time when I read Palestinia, I was a pastor in a small church, and I was worried because it seemed like no matter how hard I worked, it was never enough. It just was never enough. And so I began to think the problem was with me. This was a failing, a lack, um, a lack of capacity from within myself to be able to share Jesus in a way that would be contagious. So as a result, I was I when I went to Iona, I went very discouraged. And most of my prayers were apologies. I'm so sorry. I tried my best. It's obviously not enough. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And this book that the retreat master Jenny put into my hands, Palestinia said, there's only one thing he's asking you to do. He's asking you to come and be with him because he loves you. And when I talked to Jenny about this, she said, the retreat person, I said, she said, I wonder if that's why you're here. Because mm. this was the only way he could get you away and get your attention and begin singing to you again. So Palestinia reconnected me with Jesus in conversation and in closeness and in intimacy. And by the time I returned, went back to my church, I was in a completely different space. And I would have to say, like she does, that the Palestinian for me became the transformative space where I was alone with Jesus, Abba, and the Holy Spirit restored my soul. So when I came back to my work, I kept the first thing first and have ever since. This is really helpful and, and in a way fun for me um, because I've heard you say this statement over and over again. And, yes. and and I just assumed, you know, seek first the kingdom and this, you know, which of course is there. Um, but, but I've had um, through the years observed how one, how seriously you do take that, and two, how transformative that is for a community to be reminded, what what are what are we doing here, right? Um, yeah, could you give us just a couple examples of how that has been a kind of centering practice for you, or to, in decision making, and how you spend your time, and how you evaluate your success or lack thereof? Boy. You ask really good questions. The last one, evaluating success is, was my, um, that was the thing that caught me and knocked me down to the ground the most because I measured success the way anybody was who's trying to operate a successful franchise. 
<laughs> franchise <laughs> for Jesus. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, church, a franchise for Jesus, to make a difference in the kingdom, to be profitable, to show increase, to be attractive, all of those things. And that was firmly set in my mind, having been marinated in a Western culture as I have. So I didn't have any other way to think about what it looks like to be making a difference in the world for God, which I wanted to do so much. So it was coming out of a positive desire, but my conclusions in the way that I was approaching that were completely, um, they were shaped more by the culture than they are by my relationship with the Lord. So Catherine Doherty was never tempted by any of that. She's Russian. So she came out of Eastern <laughs> Orthodoxy. She didn't have all that stuff that encumbers us as Western people, and particularly people who are seeking to please God and have decided that what success looks like is to be productive, profitable, to be growing, showing increasing value. And I did not feel that that was happening when I looked mm -hmm. around. I could not measure success. Now, I will say this. I already had a living, a really living, vital relationship with Jesus. That wasn't missing. But once I got into ministry, I started thinking the best way I could serve him is by being really successful in ministry, measured by mm -hmm. buildings, by bucks, by bodies, the way you would evaluate any successful franchise. So, I had drifted away, and it began to consume me, my lack of success, my lack of um, really feeling like I was making a difference. I'm not using very good words here because there's still emotion that's connected with that disappointment and mm -hmm. feeling um, really inadequate in the relationship that mattered most to me in my life. When I went to Iona, when I picked up Palestinia and read this lady describing what I longed for, describing what had been my experience but now seemed to be elusive, and talked about just simply entering into a space where your intention is not on the work or asking him to bless something that you're planning, but simply on being with him, and I was away, I was away from my work, so I didn't have anything pulling at me. And when I entered into that space and I sat there for two weeks and I didn't move out of it, I found myself again. I found myself. I found him. I found our relationship. It was rekindled. And I thought, hmm, well, I think I've been looking at things from the wrong end. So she helped me. She's one of my dearest old friends because she helped me to see what had happened, to understand why it had happened, and to know how to respond, how to, how to return to a space where I could um, be filled up with him so I had something to pour, pour out and not just put my nothing into words. How did you keep that before you? in the preceding years of keeping first things first and not getting pulled into 
things that aren't important, really, or distractions. Well, sometimes they can be important too, but I appreciated very much what I just read a moment ago, where Catherine said to Merton, you begin with the first thing. You begin by loving God and being with God, and you meditate on that. You're reading scripture, you're praying, you're open, and then, only then do we have a sense of what he's calling us to do. And it will be something that probably feels so familiar to us, so personal to us, that it's hard for us to imagine that that is the call because it's already so present in us. And I don't know that we very often are called to go do something really heroic off in some distant place or to go do something that we have no heart for, no passion for, no grief for. I think very often, and this is what happened with Merton when you read Second Story Mountain, this is like three quarters of the way through the book. He meets her, and that focused him because he'd been missing a focus. And as he experienced, he created his own Palestinian. He went into a posture of listening and being quiet and then having her because he would bounce stuff off her. He'd ask her questions. We, we don't do this by ourselves. We need people who see us and love us, who love the Lord, who can help us see and name what we're beginning to experience so deeply. And then, she said, that's when we move into action. But it's an action now that's rooted in this intimate relationship with Jesus. So there's power there from the Holy Spirit. There's a deep sense of the preparation of Abba, so we know we never go into a situation as the first person. We're always coming into a situation where the Trinity is already at work. That totally shifted my preaching <laughs> and my perspective in ministry, because I didn't need to make something happen. I could be present to something that was happening and move into a place with people of helping them name, recognize and name the things that the Lord was stirring up in them and then encouraging them as that became a direction in the things they felt called to do. It was a total shift. I'm going to go down a road that I don't know if it's a road to go down or not. Mm. So let me just just play. And this is so helpful for me because this is a mantra of yours, right? right. And so yeah. to kind of hear the roots of it, there is an ease at which you seem to do ministry. This is the road I'm going that I don't like a confidence, but but it, but not in yourself, right? Because as you're saying, I mean, there's there's some insecurities in there, but yet that when you get in ministry, you're yeah, what you just said is it like there's already something going on. I'm I'm not the first on the scene, kind of. Right. Yes. Yeah, that really helps me. Um, I think I this is it, you may not include this in or not, I, Catherine Doherty. I I feel like in some ways, Merton could have been describing me when he walked in that room. It, it feels <laughs> yeah. like he could have been yeah. describing me. Yeah, you know, somebody is. that you'd think, mm, you know, uh, 
this she doesn't really have any real gifts. She's a, you know, she doesn't there's nothing here that would attract you. But then you start listening to her and you realize that she has something to share that might be helpful to you. Now, where I do not feel any relationship to her was um her call has is different than has been mine. Her sure. call, she worked with Dorothy Day. She did amazing things. She ended up moving up to Canada and starting Madonna House in Ontario. And people would go there, sort of like the Renovari Institute. They would go there to learn, to establish this rhythm between, you know, worship and the Palestinian and their work. They would kind of almost a monastic rhythm of work and worship and relationship, and they're in community. And that's how she spent the rest of her life there and wrote other books and that kind of thing. My call has been, I love the church. My call has been to, to love the bride of Jesus and to do that with as much heart and soul and strength as I possibly can. I'm not living in the ghettos of Harlem. I don't want to live in the ghettos of Harlem. During that, the Depression. Right, <laughs> right. yeah, during, during the yeah. 40s. That, that's, that's not my call, but my call is one of seeking to encourage others as they seek a deeper relationship with the Lord, and also helping us to, to understand clearly that when we talk about silence and solitude, that isn't just for introverts. Mm -hmm. That's right. Jesus withdrew to fill up so that he could then pour out and without being depleted. He was able to move into situations in ministry where he knew, talk to this man at the pool of Bethesda. He didn't have everybody put their hands up and run in a circle slapping hands and everybody was healed. He, he knew, he had a sense of Abba saying, yes, this one, this one's ready but not to feel like you needed to make something happen or to impose or to meet people where they weren't ready yet to be met. He just knew. He knew. So that kind of thing is possible, and it's possible to really burn with the Spirit in a way that can be contagious. But I have discovered, Nathan, that the way that that burning manifests itself is I wonder about this. I'll be interested to know what you think. I don't know that the person themselves is is aware of it. Hmm. I I don't think you are. I heard Trevor say something at a retreat a couple months ago. He said, um, "You may not have big, wonderful experiences of God in your time of prayer, but he said I don't know that that's where." the real transformation becomes visible. He said, I think it becomes visible in the fruit of the Spirit, and that's something other people see in you. That's not something you're necessarily aware of in yourself. And I think I think that's right. I, I don't think we see ourselves clearly at all. And I don't know that even someone like Catherine Doherty had a sense of herself as being on fire, lighting fires. She writes about it to Thomas Merton, but she says that the, we, we aren't warming ourselves at the fire in prayer. We're, we're capturing, we're burning, and then we're taking that out with us. But I don't 
I'm not all that sure that we're that aware of it in ourselves. Yeah. The people I've known that I would I would say have come as close to that that I've seen, they don't know. They don't know. Like in, in a way it's their own protection. Everybody else around them's going, Good grief, this person but it's almost like healthy for them to just not but boy how frustrating <laughs> in a way. Well, I think that's where Merton had some insecurities and Catherine Doherty just said, you know, she was she just wouldn't take any nonsense. She was a plain speaker. And she would just tell him to knock that off. And yeah. she'd say, I want you to listen to me because I see you clearly. Now, here's the truth. So <laughs> we we all need people who are clear in their sight who see us accurately, and who can help us know um, where, where we need to make some shifts in our thinking to take our attention off ourselves. You know, for me, it was a reverse thing. If you think about being in the middle of the road is where you want to be. That's where Jesus is. Well, I can fall into the ditch of thinking too much about myself. How was that? You know, or gee whiz, I, I can't believe I did that so well. Or you can fall into the ditch on the other side of the road, which is where you're all absorbed in yourself because you're worried that you should, you aren't as, you haven't come as far as you should by this time and that you know better. And why can't you just live what you know? Why do you keep slipping into the ditch? So I, I think pride can get us in a lot of ways, can make us focused on ourselves, either thinking more highly of ourselves than perhaps we ought, or to be so Bless. insecure yeah. that um, we need a lot of reassurance, which also turns in on yourself. I've been spending a lot of time with Mary mm. in Luke 2, or Luke chapter 1, and just saying, I wonder what it was that gave her favor with God because she wasn't doing anything at the time except being a, a kid in the house. So she didn't earn favor by doing stuff. Right. She earned favor. She had received favor simply because of who she was and her heart for God and her love for God and her desire to just be wherever he is. And that was enough. That was the only qualification that was needed. And then when she was given an invitation she, that she was very sure was well beyond her capacity or ability, and she was assured, don't worry, that part of it's God's business, then at that point Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Now, if I can keep my head in that space to say what he wants is me, he just wants me to be with him. He enjoys being with me. He just, that's where his favor lies. And then we can, he says, there's some stuff we can do. Do you want to come along? Do you want to be part of this? <laughs> and don't yeah. worry about it. I'll take care of the, I'll take care of everything that's necessary for this to be successful. I just want to know, would you like to come and do this with me? And she says, yes. So instead of having so much pushback, my my purpose right now, my growing edge, Nathan, 
is to spend less time just weighing it and saying, oh, I don't think so. But instead to just say, if it's being with you, that's enough for me. And you promise, you promise that you'll take care of the rest. First things. If you keep the first yeah. thing first. Yeah. And that's enough. It reminds me of a statement Jan Johnson has said to me, and I think maybe she got it from Dallas, but you keep your head down and follow Jesus, right? Like you, you don't look around too much. That reminds me of the ditches, you know, or the, yeah, just on the road. Just, yeah. just, you know where you're <laughs> supposed to go. Just keep your head down. Keep going. And it's enough to be with him. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good reminder, Mimi. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about my friend because she, I don't know that I'd really put that together in my mind, uh -huh. that that's, that was the root yeah. on when I was so broken and so full of dismay because I, I just felt like what I had gotten into was so far beyond my capacity. And uh, Catherine comes along and she writes this book and it was in my hands at just the right time. And Jesus, I could just hear Jesus saying, come home, come <laughs> home. Yeah. Come and be with me. And I did, and it has made all the difference. First things first. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Mimi Dixon talking about Catherine Doherty. A while back, Mimi did a course for Renovare titled Luminous Lives, a look at 12 shining souls shaped by God. And Catherine Doherty was one of them. You can find the course on our website. Under the Resources tab, you'll find a link to online courses. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to Life with God, a Renovare podcast. We're grateful for all of you who help make this work possible. You can support Renovare and this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org slash donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcast webinars, online classes, as well as information on events in our institute on our website at renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Until next time, be well, friends. Be well. <laughs>